Hello and welcome to another episode of Disastrous History. This week we are traveling back to one of our tried and true disasters, the tornado. Now this week's tornado is going to be one in particular that has captured the minds of many who study these things, the 2011 Joplin tornado. Now many of you have asked for this particular disaster over and over and over again, and I am happy to tell you that it is finally here. Now, it has been almost two whole years since our last tornado episode that covered the 2011 super outbreak in the south in what we so lovingly termed Waffle House Alley, and because it has been so long since that, we're going to do a refresher on tornadoes and storms and how tornadoes happen. So for the most part, tornadoes form out of storms called supercells. They are those big, towering thunderstorms that are so photogenic as they travel across the open plains and the Great Plains in Oklahoma and Texas and Kansas and Nebraska and so on. Those big, towering thunderstorms are often called thunderheads. The reason they look like that is that supercells have a spinning center called a mesocyclone. As it spins up, it sends the uh, cold air back towards the rear, giving it that thunderhead look. Now, this spinning center, the mesocyclone, is caused by wind shear. Wind shear is winds that are blowing in different directions that causes the air mass to begin to rotate. This creates the rotation in the center of the storm and kind of gives it that look of the thunderhead. So warm air is going up into the top. As it hits the top, it's spinning out and sending it backwards and then falling down in the back. Now, what this also does, this mesocyclone also does, is it allows the storm to tilt backwards. Supercells need to be tilted, so it kind of, it's like, not 100% tilted, but like, it, the front is a little bit higher. What this does is it allows the supercell to maintain strength as they have an updraft area and a downdraft area that are completely separate. The updraft pulls in warm air to fuel the storm, and the downdraft drops cold air in the back away from where the storm is pulling in brand new warm air. If those two areas merge together, the cold air will be pulled up into the storm, and the storm will start to weaken. Because of the separation of the updraft and the downdraft, supercell storms can continue on for hours, continuing to cause severe damage and produce multiple tornadoes, or one really long track tornado in the case of recently the Kentucky tornado. Uh, there was also a tornado in Mississippi just a couple weeks ago. The Kentucky tornado was in uh, January of 2021 or December of 2021 in the winter time of 2021. Um, and then there was recently a long track tornado in Mississippi. And then there's also the legendary tri-state tornado in, I believe, 1925. Don't hold me to that. I don't remember exactly off the top of my head, but there are long track tornadoes that are in these supercell storms because these the updraft and downdraft are separate, so it never actually pulls in cold air that causes the storm to weaken. The storm can continue to either strengthen, intensify, or it continue to maintain the same strength because of that tilt, because it's only taking in brand new energy, essentially. Now, supercells are often defined by strong winds, heavy rain, large hail, and the occasional tornado. They don't always have tornadoes, but they produce the most tornadoes out of any storm type. Now, there are other storm types. There's just regular thunderstorms, things like that, that can produce the occasional tornado. They're generally weaker. They're not, they don't produce those EF3, EF4, EF5. Usually, they can, but generally, it is supercells that spawn those extremely strong tornadoes. So then, how does an actual tornado form? 
well, if you remember back to 2011 episode, we kind of understand and we kind of don't. It's complicated and super sciencey, and I'm going to do my best to explain it in plain words here. So as the storm starts to build, it begins to rain. That rain cools some of the air in the spinning mesocyclone, that's the center, and drops it down towards the ground. This is called a rear flank downdraft. It is in the back of the storm, hence rear flank. Important note, it's towards the ground, not on the ground. Just making sure you guys know that. If it was on the ground, it'd be a tornado, and it'd be a really big tornado. Anyway, we are still in the atmosphere. As the mesocyclone hits the base of the storm cloud, the, the very bottom, it begins to pull in both cold air from the downdraft as well as warm air from the updraft. This begins to rotate around a center point. So the warm air and the cold air begin to rotate around each other in that mesocyclone at the bottom of the actual storm. The updraft portion gets stronger and stronger, and the rear flank downdraft begins to focus the rotation on a smaller and smaller point on the ground. So that downdraft in the back is focusing that rotation to a single point, and that updraft is making it stronger. So it's spinning faster and faster because of the updraft, and is focusing on a more narrow point because of the downdraft. While that updraft is strengthening, it creates a low-pressure area on the ground that starts to pull down the rapidly spinning, narrowly defined cyclone towards the ground in a condensation funnel. So, it's basically the same thing as all storms. Air is going to flow towards a low-pressure point. So, if you have air being pulled up into the storm, it is going to create a low-pressure point at the ground. That spinning air inside the actual storm is going to be naturally drawn towards that low-pressure area at the ground. So it's going to pull down whatever narrowly point it is at, and it will pull it down in a condensation funnel. Once it reaches the ground, once it connects with the ground, it becomes a tornado. Now, in about as simple terms as I can explain it, like I'm going to do as simply as possible. If you imagine your left hand is cold air and your right hand is warm air, between your hands, you have a lump of Play-Doh. That is the mesocyclone. You begin to move your hands back and forth to spin the Play-Doh. Eventually, the Play-Doh will elongate and spin towards the floor in a tornado-like shape. That is essentially more or less how a tornado forms. It's complicate, more complicated than that because there's no low-pressure system in a, or there's no low-pressure area for Play-Doh and all of that. It's gravity working towards your against your hands. But that's essentially the same concept, is it spins and spins and spins and then gets drawn towards the ground. Now, there is some studies that say that a lot of tornadoes form from the ground up, so like the, the condensation's on the ground, it starts to form back up towards the cloud, but it's not 100% set. Tornadoes are very hard to study. They're very unpredictable. We are getting better at predicting them, but they're very unpredictable in a place where we can get things in place to um, measure them, to record them from inside the tornado itself. Like, yes, we had Twister and they did all that, but, like, it's very difficult to get, like, that's doing that in real life is expensive. So it's been difficult to actually get measurements for every single tornado because there's a bunch of different types of tornadoes. Like, for instance, this Joplin tornado is a multi multiple vortex tornado. That means there's multiple spinning, essentially, tornadoes inside one big vortex. It 
it's super complicated and then there's just regular big single vortex tornadoes like it's a whole lot and it's really hard to measure them all so we don't know exactly everything about a tornado yet we're working on it getting closer but science doesn't know all there is to know about tornadoes yet so anyway now that we have all of that short explanation out of the way very quick down dirty refresher of tornadoes and supercells and all of that we are going to travel back in time to May of 2011. The tornado this episode is going to focus on was actually part of a larger tornado outbreak, like 241 tornadoes large outbreak. And if you remember to our last tornado outbreak in 2011, the super outbreak was in April of 2011. So 2011 was generally a bad year to be in the United States in the severe weather territory because it was a doozy of a year. But anyway, this particular tornado outbreak, the one in late May of 2011, ended up producing two EF5 tornadoes. Like, like that's a, that is unheard of. Two EF5s, and I think it was three EF4 tornadoes in this particular outbreak. Those, that's a, that's a bad three-day stretch or four-day stretch. That is a bad stretch of days, and it, I, yeah. Now, real quick, since I did mention we were going to do a refresher on tornadoes, I mentioned EF right there, like an EF5 or EF1 or whatever. That is how tornadoes are rating. It is called the EF scale. It stands for Enhanced Fujita. So if you've watched Twister, you've heard F5, you've heard F3, F2. That was the Fujita scale. Uh, they decided that that was not accurate enough to win speeds for tornadoes, so they made an enhanced Fujita scale, which is what we currently used. Tornadoes are rated on the scale from EF0 all the way up to EF5, and EF5 is the highest strength tornado you can have. That in Twister is the finger of God. They are incredibly rare and incredibly violent. There have not been very many EF5s in at all. There have been 59 EF5 or F5 tornadoes in the United States. So there have been 50 F5 tornadoes before the Enhanced Fujita Scale, so that's before 2007. Then there have been 9 EF5s, with the last EF5 occurring in 2013. So it's been a 10-year gap um, since the last EF5. Now, there are a lot of people that will dispute that because, well, I'll get into that in a minute. So, if you are in the path of an EF5 tornado you are going to have a bad time no matter where you shelter. Each EF rating is given as a range of wind speeds, but that is not how the rating is assigned. They don't measure the wind speed for each tornado, then give it a corresponding rating. The way tornadoes are rated is based upon damage left behind. The National Weather Service uses a degree of damage scale based on what you're looking at, and each degree of damage has an upper bound of wind speed and a lower bound of wind speed. So if the only damage in the tornado track is the shingles were removed from a house, then it may receive an EF0 or an EF1 rating. If the, remove, if the roof is removed from multiple houses, then it might receive an EF2 or EF3 rating. If the house is gone, the tornado might receive an EF4 rating. If the house is gone and the concrete foundation has started to be pulled out of the ground, then they might give it an EF5 rating. What I'm saying is EF5 ratings are rare there has to be an appreciable level of EF5 damage to actually receive one. So this is what I'm talking about with people being having the most recent EF5 be in 2013 in Moore, Oklahoma. There are many people that believe that the Mayfield, Kentucky tornado in 2021 
was actually an EF5 tornado. However, it only received an EF4 rating on the scale from the National Weather Service, who is the, the service that gives out all the ratings. Now, the likely reason that it only received an EF4 rating, which is still a catastrophic tornado, by the way, but the likely reason that it only received an EF4 rating was because none of the buildings in Mayfield or in the track of the tornado were built with the required strength to get an EF5 rating. So, if a tornado travels through, say, a mobile home park and only damages trailers, it's only going to get an EF3 rating at the highest. That's because they aren't built to withstand the wind speeds of 200 plus miles per hour, which is what an EF5 rating is. If you can't have a building withstand those winds to begin with, then you can't prove that it had 200 plus miles per hour wind if it's going to fail at 130 miles per hour every single time. That's where a lot of these ratings come. That's a lot of the controversy for these ratings is that you'll have widespread catastrophic damage, but you can only give it an EF4 rating because nothing there was actually built strong enough to withstand 200 miles an hour wind, wasn't built strong enough to withstand 160 miles per hour wind. There was a tornado in El Reno that killed four storm chasers that likely had winds of 200 plus miles per hour, at least according to radar, but it only received an EF3 rating because it only hit cornfields and it killed the storm chasers because they were out on the road chasing the tornado and they got caught up in the storm, which again, does not make it an EF5, it just at least doesn't make it an EF5 based on the damage that was left behind, but it still makes it a catastrophic tornado. That is one of the big controversies with the EF rating scale, is that these tornadoes cause a lot of damage, but they can't actually prove that it was the highest rating. Same with the Mississippi tornado from a couple weeks ago. A lot of people are very upset that it was an EF4 tornado rating that it got from the National Weather Service. They feel as though it was an EF5 tornado, and it was a monster tornado on the ground. But again, it's there's nothing in the way, in the path of the tornado, that can withstand 200 mile per hour winds or anywhere even close to it. So it ends up with a lower rating than it may be deserved. Even getting an EF4 rating is particularly rare, which is what makes this particular late May 2011 outbreak so off the charts wild because there were two EF5 tornadoes and three EF4 tornadoes over a four-day period. That's a, that's a lot of catastrophic, violent tornadoes in a very short amount of time. And that's immediately after the 360 tornadoes that were in the super outbreak just a month prior. So, the late May tornado outbreak in 2011 spawned 241 confirmed tornadoes over that five, four-day stretch and caused about $7 billion in damage in total. It also killed 178 people and injured well over 1,500. But there was one tornado in particular that accounted for the vast majority of those deaths and a huge chunk of that damage figure, the 2011 EF5 tornado in Joplin, Missouri. Now, Joplin, Missouri is a small city in southwestern Missouri. It boasts a population of about 51,000 or so. Joplin has a bit of an interesting past. It was originally founded on one side of the Joplin Creek Valley as Joplin City. It was also founded on the other side of the Joplin Creek Valley as Murfreesburg. That's because the city was actually two cities. 
founded to start mining lead nearby, the cities merged into Union City sometime in the 1870s. But someone decided that merger was illegal, so they separated into two different cities again. Then they merged again, later in 1873, into the city of Joplin as it is known now. Now, for the most of Joplin's history, it was used for mining. Lead, zinc, all of that kind of stuff in the areas nearby. So there are lots of piles of tailings from all the mining, and also some open-faced pits, as well as some very shallow mines. So the city runs the risk of sinkholes opening up, as a lot of the mines for this stuff are extremely shallow. This also brings up another issue that is going to be very important later on. Joplin has a very high water table and limestone near the surface, and that's why a lot of the mines were very shallow. And so that means that there are basically no basements in Joplin, and everything is very close to the surface. Also, very few storm shelters, because if there's a very high water table and there's a lot of limestone near the surface, also can't build storm shelters. There's some heavy foreshadowing there, just so you're aware. And one of the more interesting events in Joplin's history, because I definitely had to tell you guys about this when I read it, during Bonnie and Clyde, yeah, legendary outlaw, Bonnie and Clyde's legendary run from the law from 1931 to that morning in May 1934 in Louisiana, they stopped in Joplin, Missouri for a few nights. When the local police were tipped off they were there, mostly thanks to the gang being loud and randomly firing a gun to the air to late into the night, they killed a police officer and fled. But what they left behind was much more important, because Bonnie and Clyde left behind a large trove of photographs they had taken while they were on the run that became part of the legend of Bonnie and Clyde. There's photos of Bonnie holding a cigarette and a gun up against a car. There's photos of Bonnie pointing guns at various gang members. It's it's They're very interesting photos. If you take a moment to search those up, I don't blame you. It's very interesting. I also find... Uh, you know, 1930s bank robbers, fascinating, coming from Indiana, and John Dillinger, uh, John Dillinger grew up where my grandparents are from, so it's all super interesting, but I couldn't talk about Joplin without talking about Bonnie and Clyde for a little bit. But anyway, from then on, Joplin became similar to any other mid-sized American city. There are a lot of trucking companies headquartered there because of the geographic position of Joplin in the United States, but other than that, it's a pretty normal city. Nothing super unusual about it. It's very close to Branson, Missouri, which is where a lot of people go on vacation, especially in Missouri. Uh, it's fairly near the Lake of the Ozarks. Not super close, but it's it's not bad. Um, also near Oklahoma City, and that's pretty much it. It's pretty pretty normal town. Nothing, nothing super special. Um, I did some fire investigations down there when I was working in that area. Uh, like Joplin a lot. Wasn't too bad. It's one of those towns that you can just show up, get a burger, get a beer, hang out, and feels pretty much like anywhere else in the Midwest, and feels pretty welcoming. But that brings us to the evening of May 21st, 2011. A low-pressure system was sitting right over the top of South Dakota, the same one that had caused a tornado outbreak that very day of 18 tornadoes, one of which was an EF3 that caused one death in Kansas but it was going to continue to slowly work its way eastward and likely to cause another severe weather outbreak the following day, May 22nd, 2011. So May 22nd, 2011 was a Sunday. As Joplin sits in the Bible Belt, many of the city's residents had gone to church that morning. 
Catholic Mass often starts at 8 a.m. sharp, which is also when the National Weather Service put out their severe weather outlook for that day. It showed the vast majority of Missouri under a slight risk for severe weather, with the area stretching from northeast Missouri all the way across the state to southwest Missouri, like a belt across Missouri, just a, a strip straight down the middle of it, under a moderate risk for severe weather that afternoon. It's likely many Joplin residents either had never heard there was going to be severe weather or were used to this. It was springtime in Tornado Alley, after all. This happened all the time, year after year. They likely had already been under several moderate risks of severe weather that year, especially considering it was late May. Like, it was just a normal, like, growing up in the Midwest, you kind of get used to these severe weather outbreaks and all of that. It's just what it is living out here. Storms started to fire up all over the country that steamy Sunday afternoon in late May, around 1 to 2 p.m. The first confirmed tornado of the day was up in Minnesota, an EF-1 tornado that caused one fatality when a tree fell in a car a man was sitting in. But down in Joplin, it was cloudy, hot, and humid. Did not appear to be any storms anywhere nearby. It was a bit windy, but there were no indications of what was about to come. People were enjoying their Sunday, coming home from church, going out to eat, running Sunday errands, getting things prepared for the next weekend, which was a three-day weekend for Memorial Day, always a fun weekend in the United States where people grill out, have some cold beer, generally enjoy each other's companies, and yes, watch the Indy 500, although I might be a bit biased on that one. Others went to work. Chris Lucas, manager of a Pizza Hut off Range Line Road in the south end of Joplin, had gone into work that day just like any other. Reuben Carter went to work at the local Fast Trip gas station, as he had many times before. Elsewhere, another event was happening that day in Joplin. A very major one. It was graduation day for the Joplin High School class of 2011. 455 seniors were walking across the stage to accept their diplomas from the principal that Sunday afternoon in an auditorium at Missouri Southern State University. When the 6,000 or so people in attendance went into the auditorium, it was hot and humid and just a touch windy. When they walked out at about 4.30 to 5 p.m., it had changed drastically. It was dark and the sky appeared ominous on the horizon. Many of the 6,000 people of graduates, relatives, and the like came out of the auditorium and headed in their different directions. But unbeknownst to them, and nearly everyone else in the Joplin area, the storm that would up in their lives had already formed and was headed directly for them. Will Norton had just graduated from Joplin High School and was driving home with his father, Mark. Melinda and Sabrina Duncan, sisters, had also just graduated from Joplin High and were headed to a local Walmart with their grandmother, Sharon, to pick out a graduation cake to celebrate that afternoon for what would be the start of the rest of their lives. As everyone traveled around Joplin and went about their business, the first tornado siren of the afternoon went off at 5.11 p.m. Central Time. But unfortunately, many ignored this first warning. And to be honest, I know if you come from somewhere that's not the Midwest or the South, that sounds kind of insane. It's a very loud air raid siren, essentially, going off in your neighborhood. People should take notice. But growing up here, you hear them enough that you just kind of block them out. And if it doesn't look threatening outside, if it doesn't look like it's there's going to be a tornado, like you are going to ignore it. And unfortunately, that's what it looked like when the first tornado siren went off in Joplin. 
is it did not look ominous. It kind of did, but not overly, you need to take shelter now. It was still, it was dark, but it was a normal thunderstorm kind of dark. It wasn't, this is going to be the worst tornado to ever hit your city kind of dark. It was, well, we have some time. And they they did, really. So when one tornado siren goes off in Joplin, all of the tornado sirens in Joplin go off. It's not a, oh, we can set them off in the southern half of the city because only the southern half of the city is currently threatened. It's if one portion, one goes off, they're all going off. So tornado sirens were going off in a huge area and people weren't seeing anything or they were hearing stuff from other people that was putting tornado north of the city or south of the city or there was a tornado just across the border in Kansas or there was a tornado further east into Missouri that they weren't getting reliable information that they could make a reasonable decision with. The first official tornado warning that was issued to the actual Joplin area went out at 5.17 p.m. The tornado, the, the one we're going to talk about, first touched down officially at 5.34 p.m. just southwest of the intersection of Central City Road and 32nd Street on the southwest edge of the city limits of Joplin. Now, if you'll note, that is a long 23 minutes between when the first sirens went off and when the tornado actually touches down. 23 minutes is a long warning time in tornado time. Like, if you go back and watch Twister, they're talking two or three minutes between when the sirens went off and when the tornado touched down. This one, we're talking 23 minutes. That is easily the difference between life and death. However, the tornado siren is just that. It's a siren. It does not relay any more information. Like, at all. It's literally just a loud whining noise. And those in Joplin looked outside and saw it start to get stormy, but years and years of living in Tornado Alley desensitizes you to tornado sirens a bit. And I gotta be honest, even if they had sought shelter in those moments after the siren went off, 23 minutes in a storm shelter is a lot. That is a long time, especially if you have pets or children or whatever. Most people's shelter locations are not comfortable in any way. It's a damp, dark, and musty basement, or an interior bathroom in a bathtub, or a closet. If you're not at home, it's a desperate search for somewhere to hide. And if you look outside and don't see a threat, well, you're unlikely to want to go subject yourself to that uncomfortable situation. Especially if you have kids. Because having kids, having to take them down to our storm shelter is awful they get terrified they're nervous all of that so if i look outside and it doesn't look like anything's coming it makes me hesitate to take them down there and subject them to that and i can't blame people in joplin for ignoring that first one or if they did go down there and then they sat down there for 10 minutes and nothing happened they didn't even have a tornado warning yet well it makes it even harder to justify keeping the kids or their pets or whoever down in the basement or on very unlikely in Joplin, as we talked about, there aren't many basements in their interior bathroom or in the closet or whatever. They're not going to stay there. They're going to come back out because it doesn't look like anything is happening. And then let's say tornado sirens go off at 511. You go down, you're down there for 10 minutes. Nothing happens. There's no tornado warning, nothing like that. You go back upstairs. Two or three minutes later, the tornado sirens go off again. You look outside, you still see nothing. 
you're much less likely to go back down into that shelter the second time that warning goes off because you've already been fooled once. It That's a thing that happens on a regular basis. That didn't happen here necessarily, and I'll get into why, but you are much less, like, people are less likely to go back down for a second warning if they've already been warned once and nothing happened, and then a few minutes later they get that second warning, they're not going to go back down. So part of the balancing act of too much information versus too little information is making sure that you don't overload them with warnings because people start to ignore them, and for good reason. They have their own reasons for ignoring them. It's not smart. It's not even not smart. It's difficult because you have to weigh what people are going to want to deal with versus when their lives are actually in danger. So that's a whole thing that we could get into later. Anyway, from where the tornado touched down, it began to travel east-northeast. Quickly building in strength, the tornado was at EF4 level within four minutes of touchdown and had grown quite large in width. So when the tornado touched down, it was relatively weak, as most tornadoes are. But within four minutes, that's barely any time at all, it had already reached EF4 strength, which is over 160 mile per hour winds. As the storm approached the city, reports were coming in from all over the place that there was a tornado north of the city, or south of the city, or somewhere in Kansas. No one seemed to really know where, especially not knowing that the tornado was headed directly at them, because that wasn't the case. The tornado wasn't north of them, or south of them, or in Kansas. It was headed directly at them, directly for the heart of Joplin. As soon as people... As soon as the newscasters and meteorologists realized what was happening, they dropped all pretense on television. If you watch videos of newscasters, of meteorologists in Joplin before this tornado started to travel towards them, they go from, you need to be careful, you need to take shelter, to literally, and I'm not not exaggerating, literally begging and pleading with people to take shelter immediately. They are telling, they're not even talking to the general public. They're telling their families on air, you need to get in shelter now. They're telling friends, you need to take shelter immediately. They are almost in tears with how bad this tornado is. Because at this point, it is nearing a mile wide. It is easily EF4 strength. And it is headed for the most populous areas of Joplin. This was not going to be a normal Midwest storm. This was not even going to be a normal Great Plains supercell storm. This was going to be unlike anyone in Joplin or almost anywhere else had ever experienced before. This was a matter of life and death immediately. This was terror. Just straight, sheer terror. There has been very few tornadoes like the one that is bearing down on Joplin at that very moment. The tornado crossed Schiffer Decker Avenue in South Joplin at 5.38 p.m., and this is where the catastrophic damage began. The first fatality to occur during this tornado was in a car on Schiffer Decker Avenue. It would unfortunately not be the last. The tornado flattened every home it came into contact with. Although flattened isn't quite the right word. More like disappeared. Entire foundations were swept completely clean of anything on top of them. There was just flat floor left. Sometimes not even that. Vehicles were picked up into the air and wrapped around trees. Well, what was left of the trees. 
because oftentimes those trees had been stripped of every single leaf on them. But not just the leaves. The very bark on the trees was ripped off. Completely. Imagine the force required to do that to a single tree, let alone every tree in an entire area. And speaking of cars, there were numerous people in Joplin who had cars before the storm and never found their car again, not even in the debris. There, were a, there was a ton of debris that was removed from Joplin. They literally never found their car again. They have no idea. And it wasn't just one person. It was multiple people who could not find their car. There were cars buried in basements. There were cars sitting on roofs of buildings that managed to stay upright. Cars were flipped upside down and thrown into giant piles. It was like a toddler came through playing with Hot Wheels and just threw them everywhere. This storm was catastrophic in every way. T cars were sitting up in trees that had all of their leaves, branches, and all of that removed. Like, it is insane. Tree branches were embedded in car doors. Tree branches were embedded in the ground. Tree branches were embedded through walls of buildings, just straight shot through the side of a wall. It was at this point the tornado siren sounded again throughout Joplin at 5.38 p.m., which is 27 minutes after the first tornado siren went off in Joplin. This time, when people looked outside, their worst fears were confirmed. The tornado was there, and it was massive. When it first touched down, the tornado appeared to storm chasers as multiple vortexes rotating around a single point, but soon it merged into what appeared to be one giant vortex. Now I say appeared to be because it could have been multiple vortexes inside of this and it was just too dark and too full of debris to actually see the multiple vortexes, but who knows, it was a massive wall of death. One of the first non-residential buildings hit was Joplin Elk Lodge. Five members of the lodge were inside the building at the time the tornado hit the building. Someone had run in from outside telling them to take shelter, and all five of them were in the process of running to the walk-in fridge to hide when the building was obliterated. Four out of the five members would not survive, with the fifth being tossed through the air and ending up with severe injuries after they hit the ground. Just after that, the tornado approached two high-rise medical buildings, the St. John's Regional Medical Center. The East Tower was a nine-story concrete building, and the West Tower was a seven-story concrete building. The tornado ripped the entire outer cover off of both buildings, exposing the interior, which was patients and staff, directly to the tornado's wrath. Inside the building, they were buffeted by debris from houses and buildings, as well as the building itself, as well as anything that was inside. So desks, papers, glass medical equipment, cars from the parking lot were all being launched at this building as this massive tornado traveled through the area. 14 individuals in these buildings lost their lives in this tornado. Now imagine you are in a medical facility. It is a concrete building. You are on the ninth floor. You look out the ninth floor and all you can see is this giant a mile-wide wall of black headed directly at you. It looks just like a giant cloud, except it's reaching all the way to the ground. And the only way you can tell where the edges are is all the way as far as you can see on your right and all the way as far as you can see on your left and occasionally in front of you 
as power poles flash as they are ripped out of the ground by this massive maw of black nothingness, and it is coming directly at you. And again, you are on the ninth floor of a building, and when it finally gets to you, you make it to an into an interior area, which is likely a staircase, and all of a sudden, everything inside of the building is being sucked out the windows because it has ripped the entire exterior off. You're hiding in a stairwell, hoping beyond all hope that the door that you're hiding behind that you just came through doesn't also get ripped out and you get sucked out into this ravenous beast of destructive power that you hope is going to end. But it seems like it takes forever because, again, it is a mile wide. This is what these people were experiencing on the ninth floor, seventh floor, fifth floor, the whole thing. They're begging for it to end and hope that the building that you're currently in, that's likely shuddering uncontrollably, even though it's made of completely concrete, hoping beyond all hope that it does not collapse. And this is a medical center. So a lot of these people rely on power to stay alive. And when the power failed, several of them that relied on ventilators to stay alive and keep breathing did eventually pass away because of the loss of power. It was, it is indescribable to, to, it is indescribable how it would have been inside those buildings because you're, if you get sucked out of the ninth floor or the fifth floor, you are unlikely to survive. Like you, that's a long way down. Even if you get sucked up into a tornado, you're unlikely to survive anyway. But coming from that high up already, it's going to be a bad time. And I can't imagine a terror more raw than being that high up off the ground, being on a ventilator or being bedridden because you have a broken pelvis or whatever and a tornado coming at you and knowing there is absolutely nothing that you can do because you can't run, you can't hide, you are stuck where you are. Now, I'm sure that a lot of the, the nurses and doctors and whatever did absolutely everything they could to get all of those patients into a safe place, but that's a lot of patients and not a lot of nurses and doctors. And it's still going to be terrifying because those nurses and doctors also have to worry about themselves and their families and if they're going home or not. That is a terrible, terrifying situation to be in. Now, just to give you an idea of how strong this tornado was when it struck these two buildings, it was in the St. John's Regional Medical Center parking lot that one of the wildest examples of tornado damage I have ever heard of occurred. So, you know how in parking lots they have those concrete parking blocks so you can't drive forward so far and hit whatever's beyond them? They're often painted yellow and they're generally pounded into the ground with rebar um, and they sit more or less flush with the ground. Well... Several of those in the St. John's Regional Medical Center parking lot were ripped out of the ground and tossed, like rebar and all, ripped up, tossed by the tornado. Now, the amount of energy, the amount of wind required to get one of those, not, not only get the wind underneath that that's generally sitting flush with the asphalt, underneath that, but to rip it up and out, that's crazy. An Iowa State wind engineer estimated the wind speed required to do that. Again, rip up a hunk of concrete attached to the ground with rebar, designed to be low-ish profile, because again, if you need to drive over it, you can. It was estimated to require wind speeds of over 200 miles per hour, which is 
EF5 tornado level wind speeds. After that, the tornado then continued its rampage eastward and struck the Green Buyer nursing home. The nursing home was completely destroyed with 19 people inside losing their lives out of 95 occupants. It then continued on a northeast track and demolished a grocery store and significant portions of the Joplin High School, where, fortunately, no one was located at the time. After leaving the area of the high school, the tornado turned and ran parallel to 20th Street, headed straight for the center of Joplin. It was at this point that Christopher Lucas, the manager of the Pizza Hut located off just 20th and Rangeline Road, knew they were in trouble. There were four employees and 15 customers inside Pizza Hut that Sunday evening. Christopher Lucas and his co-worker Daniel Fluhart looked outside and saw nothing but black coming right at them. It was described as a wall of black death. There were no edges. The tornado was so large. You couldn't see the edge of the tornado. It literally just like a really big black cloud coming right at them. Knowing that it was headed right for them, Christopher called his girlfriend and said, I'm going to bring you home a pizza. I love you with my whole heart, then hung up. Christopher then went inside and sent everyone, employees and customers, to the shelter of the walk-in cooler. There they waited for the tornado to get to them. But it wouldn't take long before Christopher realized the door wouldn't hold against the ferocity of the monster that was bearing down on them. So he did the only thing he could think to do. He grabbed the bungee cord, holding the door closed, and wrapped it around his own arm to hold it closed himself. He kept it shut for a time. Just him, this single man, versus this deadly storm, one of the strongest things to ever land on the face of the earth, just long enough to save the majority of the people inside the cooler. But eventually the storm would rip him and the door out of the cooler, and Christopher Lucas would lose his life defending others against one of the worst tornadoes to ever strike the United States. Meanwhile, inside the cooler, his co-worker Daniel Fluhart was watching Christopher attempt to do this, saw him start to lose control, attempted to grab onto him, but he was gone in a flash, and he was unable to save him. Elsewhere in the cooler, Beth Sappington was there with her grandson and granddaughter. When they took shelter in the cooler... Beth had put her granddaughter and grandson on the floor and then laid herself down on top of them to protect them from the coming storm. As the tornado moved through the area, it picked up both Beth and her grandson Cade and launched them into the sky. Both had been sucked up by the tornado. Cade was picked up and tossed and hit the ground and tossed and hit the ground and then tossed again. When he finally came to rest, he had a broken jaw, broken vertebrae, broken ribs, a bruised lung, lacerated liver, lacerated spleen, and a seven-inch gash across his head, but he was still alive. His sister Kristen was the one who found him and dug him out of a pile of debris in the parking lot. The only thing he remembers as he was being tossed through the air was thinking he was going to die. Beth suffered similarly, she was picked up by the tornado and repeatedly bounced off the ground over the course of about 100 yards. She had several broken bones and a dislocated foot, but she was also alive. The only thing she remembers is pleading to God to let her live, and when she finally landed, she could hear someone screaming and wanted to help them, but then realized that she was the one that was screaming. Of the 19 people inside the Pizza Hut, 
as the tornado hit, 14 would make it out alive. Elsewhere in Joplin, Reuben Carter knew it was coming. It was hard to miss. There's a low roar that seems to be growing louder. The rain outside is falling quite literally horizontally. Rain doesn't do that unless something bad is coming. He's shuttling people inside towards the back. More and more keep coming inside. Finally, some people start banging on the door after he locks it for the last time, and he goes to the front and unlocks the door to let them in. He can't leave them outside. He is huddled against a back wall of a fast trip gas station with 22 other people, watching through giant plate glass windows as a literal wall of angry wind advances slowly towards them. The roar is getting closer. The people inside this little gas station are a wide range, as is normal for a gas station. There are children and parents and grandparents from all walks of life. They're all together in this tiny gas station that is doing the best to fight this destructive maw headed right for them. Reuben quickly realizes they cannot stay in this aisle inside the store. They won't survive. The whole front of the building is glass, and it's facing towards the tornado. They have to head for the walk-in beer cooler. He yakes open the door and starts to scream. But barely anyone can hear him because that roar is so loud now. He's screaming women and children first, over and over again. Women and children first. Women and children first. Which is crazy, because that's a thing that you hear in movies, but you never expect to hear it in real life. The wind is whipping the words away from his mouth as soon as they leave. Further down the aisle, a woman named Sandy is also sheltering in that aisle, among all those other people. She can see Reuben, who is the gas station worker, yelling for everyone to get inside the cooler. She tries her best to get up and go, but it feels like her body just gives out and she can't move. Just then, the giant glass windows in front of the gas station explode all at once. Wind is picking up around her. The wall they are sheltering against is moving in and out and in and out like the gas station is breathing. But it's not. It's the storm, and it's terrifying her. She is frozen in place on the floor. Glass is flying around. Debris is flying around. She is alone, and it feels like she's going to die. Except she's not alone. Behind her are two college students, Michaela Seeler and Matt Dorr. They want to get to the cooler and into what is likely to be their only safety. But Sandy is on the floor in front of them. So they do what seems right. They hoist her up and shove her in the cooler in front of them, saving her life. Reuben, meanwhile, finally gets the last person inside and turns and looks out the front of the gas station. The front wall lurches forward. Not the windows, or the stuff in the store, that's already been blown out. Stuff inside the store is being sucked slowly out the front window. There's chips, bags of chips, and bags of cookies, and magazines and whatnot, just out the front window, as if someone's plucking them through the window to have a snack. This is the entire front wall. It has moved away from the building. He realizes it's time to get inside and lunges into the cooler. The problem is, there's no handle inside this walk-in cooler, so no one can lock themselves in. So he grabs the door and kind of tries to get it closed, and he happens to look at the front of the store one last time and sees something incredibly terrifying. The wall that had just lurched forward, it's, it, it launches, it goes away. It launches straight upward in one solid piece. The entire front of the store disappears into the air, upward into this tornado. 
With that, he tries to get the door closed as far as he can. Thankfully, something, who knows what, the storm or debris or whatever, slams the door closed all the way, and they have a brief reprieve from the storm. And by brief, I mean brief. This is one of the most human events of the entire tornado. All of these strangers, who do not know each other, are in this tiny, cramped beer cooler in a gas station in a small city in the Midwest, trying their best to calm each other down. They're telling each other it's going to be okay. They're telling each other to calm down. They're telling each other they will be there for each other. They don't know each other. They don't know each other's names. They don't know each other's backgrounds. They don't know anything. All they know is there is a giant wall of wind coming at them that is very likely going to kill them. This is a bunch of humans, children, parents, elderly, it does not matter. All of them were in this thing knowing that they were facing death in the face. There are children crying. People are screaming. People are praying. They're begging for it to just end. Children are screaming they don't want to die where their mothers tried desperately to console them. Strangers are trying to console those children along with their parents. It is a group of strangers faced with death, doing their best to keep each other comfortable and feel safe in the inevitability of the sheer terror and what could be their final moments on this earth. It is one of the most human experiences that you could ever hear, listen to, whatever. They are living the absolute terror, and they're all going through this together. And the first thing they do, instead of trying to figure out how to make themselves safe, they're trying to comfort each other. They're trying to take care of each other. Strangers are taking care of other people's kids to keep them calm, to help those parents keep them calm. They are taking care of each other. They're turning to each other to make sure that they get everybody through this absolute, undescribable fear, this indescribable face of death together and out the other side. A few seconds later, someone screams out, I think we're going to do this. And then a woman screams a high-pitched scream, then it hits. Everything before this was the storm wreaking havoc. The tornado is now. That roar that was getting ever so closer as they moved through the as they let the last people in the building, as they were sheltering in the aisle, as they were heading towards the beer cooler, as they got into the water into the beer cooler, that was just the tornado approaching. The tornado is now. For 30 to 40 seconds, there are no human sounds. There is no screaming. There is no crying. There is no, oh God. There is no help. There's nothing. It is only the sound of the tornado ripping the gas station apart around them. The sound of the world coming to an end around them. As everything in that area, everything that they know is being ripped apart. As the roar subsides, someone screams out, I love you. Someone else replies back, I love everyone. And then, before you know it, I love everyone is echoed back through the entire walk-in cooler. 
these people did not know each other. Now, some of them are there with their families, but they didn't know the other people in the cooler. And the first thing that comes out of everyone after this tornado, after they have looked death in the face and it had moved on with leaving them alive, the first thing they did was express their love for the person next to them that just went through that experience with them. That is what humanity is in a disaster. And I'm harping on this a lot, I realize, but this is what happens to humans after disaster and during disaster. They turn to each other to look for comfort, to look to, for help, to look for safety, and we always come through. We always take care of each other in disasters. I love everyone, echoed through that cooler, and the tornado moved on because it wasn't done. It didn't just stop at that fast trip gas station. It continued on. But those people inside that gas station, all 20-something of them lived, every single one of them, thanks to the guidance of Reuben Carter, thanks to those people in there making sure each other are okay, looking around, seeing who was injured, who had cuts, who had scrapes, who had bruises, and making sure they were all okay. Through tears and terror, they ask if everyone is okay. They pick each other apart in that cramped cooler, they show the remarkable resilience of humanity in that cooler. Everyone is safe. There are minor injuries, but everyone is alive. They've made it. But the tornado hasn't stopped yet. It would not stop for several more miles. Meanwhile, Will Norton was driving home from his graduation ceremony with his father, Mark Norton. They were in their Hummer when the storm began to pick up. It got increasingly bad as the tornado began to bear down on them. Mark asked Will to pull the truck over to take shelter, but it was too late. The tornado picked up their Hummer and rolled it several times. Mark tried desperately to hold on to his son in the truck, keeping him inside. It even shattered his arm in the process in many places. But the tornado ripped Will from the vehicle, and he died in the impact just an hour after Will graduated from high school. That is the difference between a tornado. It hits here, it hits there. People, everyone survives here. Someone who just had one of the biggest accomplishments of their life loses their life literally an hour later thanks to this tornado. It hits here, it hits there. These people live, these people don't. It is indiscriminate in its destruction. It is random in its destruction. And it is not to be messed with. Elsewhere, Melinda and Sabrina Duncan had just arrived in the Walmart parking lot with their grandmother after their graduation ceremony to get a graduation cake to celebrate. All three got out of the Toyota Camry they were in and walked up to the front of the Walmart. What they found was unusual because they found locked doors. N knowing that that's probably not good, they did the only thing they could think of. They sprinted back to their car and sheltered from the coming storm there. Soon, they found the car being hit by wood and glass and even other cars as the tornado traveled through the area. It then broke all the windows out in their car, and their car was picked up and moved. It ended up buried underneath other cars, and they all had to crawl out, thankfully all alive with some cuts and bruises. Inside a nearby Home Depot, most of the workers and customers at the time had taken shelter in the back training area of the store. 
Everyone in this area made it through the storm alive when all the walls fell outward away from where they were sheltering. Unfortunately, eight individuals, including a father and two children, attempted to shelter from the storm inside the Home Depot after entering through the lumber section. There, one of the exterior concrete walls fell on them, killing all eight people. Inside a local AT&T store, 11 people took shelter from the storm. One of the workers there said all 11 of them ran into the Miz bathroom and hid. The tornado hit them head on. He said there were loud crashing and ripping noises, and then all of a sudden it felt like he was flying, kind of like Superman. And then he was unconscious. When he came to, he was laying among the rubble of the store and was trapped with a woman next to him. He began doing the one thing he could think of, trying to keep everyone around him calm while he waited for rescuers who were sure to be coming. He told the woman over and over again, over a 20 minute or so period, that she was doing an amazing job of remaining calm and patient and waiting for rescue. He did this over and over again to the man next to him who he could hear talking back to him and to the woman next to him he thought was just being really chill considering they had just been through an EF5 tornado and were now trapped in a collapsed AT&T store. But he finally realized at some point that she wasn't remaining calm. She wasn't just stoic in the face of this absolute tragedy. She was dead. Her name was Cheryl San Miguel Nelson, and she was the only fatality in the AT&T store. Thousands of other individual stories of survival and heroism abound from across Joplin that afternoon. People who tossed their children into bathtubs then lay across the top of them to shield them from falling debris. Standing at the top of basement stairs to hold doors closed while their families hid below. Strangers holding strangers in dark and terrifying circumstances in places that were unfamiliar and confusing. Humanity showing its best in the face of absolute worst. In the face of absolute death and destruction. People came together to save each other and make each other feel comfortable. In homes, it was worse. There were multiple apartment complexes that were completely demolished, collapsed in on themselves. Homes were blown completely away. The problem with Joplin, as I alluded to earlier, is the high water table and large amount of limestone close to the surface. This meant that basements are very rare in the city, so most people were attempting to hide on the first floor in interior rooms such as bathrooms or closets, and it's just not the same as a basement, especially considering it was an EF5 tornado. Growing up in this area, you generally see your fair share of tornadoes, usually off in the distance, and you can see the edges. You can see it coming. The Joplin tornado was different. Anywhere from three quarters to a mile wide, there was no edge you could see. You're standing on the ground, the edge of it's going to be blocked. It's just going to look like a giant black wall. Everything was so dark and black that it was an advancing wall of nothingness of which there was no escape. It was like a black hole had opened up and was just moving through Joplin, Missouri. I cannot imagine how terrifying that would be to look outside and realize that the thing coming at you was going to destroy everything you know. Because it's not just leveling. Like tornadoes that are, you know, three, four hundred feet wide are just destroying houses on one street or part of a neighborhood. The Joplin tornado was different. It was destroying entire neighborhoods. Like, you're not going down and seeing where it, like, traveled along a street. It's traveling across, like, 12 blocks. 
we're talking entire subdivisions that no longer existed. Every house in the subdivision was gone. We're, and it's not just one. It is across the entire south portion of Joplin, which is some of the most populated portions of Joplin. There are entire apartment complexes gone. The whole building, gone. Collapsed. And it's not just one. It's multiple complexes that are collapsed. This was a city-defining. A third of the city was destroyed. Think about that. A third of a city of 51,000 people was destroyed in this tornado. That's how big this thing was. That is hard to wrap your brain around how truly destructive that is. Eventually, the tornado made its way out of Joplin and continued on for another 16 or so miles for a total track length of 22.1 miles. This monster storm was on the ground for 46 minutes and caused death and destruction throughout six full miles of Joplin. The storm would kill 161 people in its path. It caused 1,500 injuries, nearly $3 billion worth of damage, and it changed the city forever. So if you remember back to earlier, I said that this particular tornado outbreak killed 178 people and injured well over 1,500. 161 of those dead were in Joplin alone. So 90% of the fatalities from this outbreak were from one tornado in one city. Almost 100% of the injuries from this tornado were from one tornado in one city. It caused The outbreak caused $7 billion in damage. $3 billion of that alone was from Joplin. So nearly half of the damage from a, a tornado outbreak that had 241 tornadoes was from a single tornado in Joplin, Missouri. This was a defining tornado. This was a historical tornado that has almost no comparison in recorded history. There has never been anything like the Joplin tornado. It was destructive, damaging on another scale that we haven't really seen anything come close to. The EF5 in, in Moore, Oklahoma was similar. But this was indescribable. And then it was over. For most people, the tornado lasted 30 to 40 seconds, destroyed everything they loved, and then it moved on to destroy everything that someone else loved, and then it was over. All it took was 30 to 40 seconds to people to lose everything they had ever known, and then they were left to pick up the pieces. One of the big things that often gets overlooked in the aftermath of disasters such as this is what do the survivors do? Like, what do you do after that? You can't stay in your home. There's nothing left. It's, it's a flat slap. It's, it's literally just the floor. You don't know where any of your stuff is. You may not know where your car is. Your car could be three, four, ten miles away. You have no idea. You don't know anything. You, there's no cell service. There are no roads. There's no, cl there's no clean running water. There's no electricity. There's gas leaks everywhere. You have, you have nothing. You may not even be able to take your contacts out. You may have lost your glasses. You may not be able to see. You may not have any way to change your kid's diaper. All of the diapers might have been gone. There is so much that you have to think about in the aftermath, and it's not just for you. It's for everyone around you. You have thousands of people in this disaster that are now homeless, about 9,200 people or so. 
it destroyed 4,000 homes in the city. That is a huge population you now have to figure out shelter for as the emergency management agency in the city. As the state, you have to figure out how are we going to house these people because you can't have 9,200 people homeless. That It's not possible. That would be an insane drain on resources, and people would die. So the city set up shelters to house those people. But also, you got to think that the places that are used for those mass sheltering things are off, at least in this case, were destroyed. Drop on high school, several elementary schools, churches, those kinds of places are usually the go-to mass sheltering option for a situation such as this, but they were destroyed in the tornado. So you have to come up with plan B or plan C or plan D. You And you have to hope that FEMA responds with some kind of sheltering situation, which they did in this case. FEMA set up a bunch of temporary shelters for people all over the city. Like You have to hope the state and the federal government come in with some resources because local agencies generally don't have the resources to support a sudden influx of 9,200 people that they have to shelter, feed, uh, bathe. They have to give hygiene products to of all kinds. They have to have medical care for all of that, you can't just leave them. That's not that's not an option. I mean, some people will say, ah, they'll just figure it out, but you that that's not an option. It's not a feasible option for anybody. You have to figure out what to do with that. And the other issue is you can't have water. There's no water in the city because all there's a bunch of leaks. There's a bunch of gas line leaks. There was a boil order in place for almost a week after the tornado because Everything was destroyed. You have no power. There's going to be thousands of miles of power lines down, so there's no electricity. So even if you could get water out, you can't boil it unless you build a bonfire because there's no power to boil the water. This is a giant, so it becomes a, it, it's a, it's a disaster from a natural source. The tornado is a disaster, but then it becomes a humanitarian disaster because you have to figure out what to do with all these people to keep them safe after they just went through the most traumatic experience of their life. Thankfully, the humanitarian effort to help Joplin recover from this was gargantuan and came from all over. FEMA came in, the state came in, the Red Cross came in, people sent in supplies from all over the place after they saw what happened to this city. The president took a tour, the governor took a tour, all of it. It was a gargantuan effort to make sure these people were not forgotten and were taken care of. In the end, the rating for the tornado originally was released as a high-end EF4 tornado. Later surveys took in some unconventional damage assessments and increased the rating to an EF5. Those unconventional assessments included ripping the parking stops out of the ground and ripping manhole covers out of the ground, because of course it did. Maximum wind speeds in the tornado were estimated to be in the neighborhood of 225 to 250 miles per hour. Now, those are estimated, those are likely radar-indicated uh, wind speeds. Those aren't, like, we measured them on the ground at 250-mile-an-hour wind speeds. That's estimated from radar. Now, I have to mention that the rating from the National Weather Service of an EF-5 tornado is disputed. Again, one of the big issues with the EF rating system is it is based on how the structure is built. So any tornado that only hits a trailer park, for instance, can have a max rating of an EF3. That is because the degree of damage upper bound of wind speed for a mobile home 
to be completely blown away is 154 miles per hour. That is a mid-tier EF3 tornado. So if a massive tornado hits an area that only has mobile homes, even if it was very likely an EF4 or stronger, it will only receive an EF3 rating because we cannot reliably and accurately measure all tornado wind speeds for strength. So to give you guys a better idea of what I mean, because I keep mentioning mobile homes, this is the first one I thought of, but there's a whole list of 28 different damage indicators, and it's based on what the building is, or tree, or whatever. So there's small barns, farm outbuildings, one or two family residences, uh, apartments, condos, motels, uh, small retail buildings, which is fast food, stuff like that, strip malls, and then it goes all the way to transmission line tower, freestanding tower, warehouses, uh, trees, hardwood, and softwood. They all have different degrees of damage. So if we go into, you know, softwood trees, so if the softwood tree is completely debarked, with only the, the, the smallest stubs of branches remaining of the largest branches. The upper bound wind speed for that is 153 miles per hour. So if that tornado only hits softwood trees and does that damage to those trees, debarks them, then it will be a mid to high end EF3. Now if it does the same to hardwood trees, so oak, maple, things like that, does the exact same damage, debarks them, with only the largest branches remaining, the upper bound wind speed for that is 167 miles per hour, which is a low-end EF4. But the damage indicators of cars being tossed and disappearing, of parking stops being ripped out of the parking lot, of manhole covers being ripped up, are not degrees of damage that are in the official classification of the National Weather Service. But they use them anyway, because... You can't, I, I, I hate to say that you can't ignore damage, but you can't ignore damage. Like, when you see something like that, that is, that defies what you would normally see with a tornado, that defies anything you've ever seen before in a tornado, you really ought to take it into account and say, look, this is what I have. I've never seen this happen before. This happened during the tornado. We need to figure out how this damage indicator works into our existing system, or we need to change our existing system so we can ex include these other degrees of damage that we're finding after this extraordinary event, because this is an extraordinary event, and extraordinary events require extraordinary measures taken to make sure that we fully understand what happened. And that's what the National Weather Service did. They looked at these weird damage indicators that they found, these things that were so unusual they'd never seen before after a tornado, and they said, look, this is only possible with wind speeds of 200 or whatever. This was an EF5 tornado. But the American Society of Civil Engineers went in and did damage assessments to the tornado's path and found that none of the buildings that were built to the strength capacity required to achieve an EF5 rating or ones that were, didn't have EF5 damage that they could find. Which, I can understand. But they also further reported that almost none of the buildings that were destroyed were built to withstand EF4 winds. So, they were giving it an EF4, but they were also arguing that this might not even have been an EF4 tornado. Had this been anywhere else, it would have been an EF3 
or an EF2, which I find hard to believe, but okay. Regardless of that report, the tornado rating of an EF5 stood, and I'm going to be honest, I completely agree with it. The complete level of destruction observed is rare, because it's in its it's end-to-end, like the whole tornado, the whole path is just flattened. The scar that it left on the city of Joplin is, when I went there, so I've been to Joplin several times, I went there about five years after the tornado, you could still tell the area the tornado went through, because all of the trees were brand new, all of the trees were young saplings, you could tell, just driving through the scar, where the tornado stopped, and where the tornado was. It was wild, and I'm sorry, but if you're going to find damage like that, that's unconventional, but it still happened, you need to take it into account when you're doing your rating. I, I, that's just me. If you find something unusual, you can't explain it, and you can find a way to explain it that accounts for why it happened, where it happened, how it happened, then you need to account for it in your rating. Otherwise, you're not giving an accurate picture for people to study later on to decide how to build and how to make their community safer. If you come back and say, well, we saw these weird, unusual things, but we're not going to note them, so we'll just let it off as an EF3 that just happened to be extremely deadly and went through a very unlucky portion of the city. That does a disservice to people that are trying to make their community safer against tornadoes. Giving it this rating, giving it the, giving it this this level of destruction that it, it did happen, allows people to say, "Hey, this happened here. It could happen elsewhere. We need to prepare in the future." And it also, weirdly enough, gives the people that lived through it some sense of, "Yeah, it was as bad as I'm saying it was." It was an EF5. We lived through an EF5. You need to take this seriously. That also gives those people who made it through, who lost everything they own, everything they've ever loved, and had a traumatic experience, it gives them a thing to point to and say, this is what can happen. This is why we need to do it this way. That's the end of it. And that's that's where I'm at with it. In the aftermath of the tornado, Joplin was determined to rebuild their city. They built multiple houses a week for the better part of a year. The tornado had created 3 million cubic yards of debris, which, if you're trying to come up with a way to figure out how much that is exactly, don't. It's ridiculous. But, I mean, it's almost the volume of three Empire State Buildings. It's a nearly impossible amount to actually wrap your brain around. So, you can fill... Two whole Empire State Buildings. You could build two entire, not just the the frame, the whole inside of it. Two completely solid Empire State Buildings. And then like three quarters of another one out of the debris that came out of Joplin from this tornado. That's how much debris there was. That is a crazy amount of debris. And it had to be sent out over landfills and everywhere throughout the southern portion of Missouri because... They were going to fill the landfill they already had there. Now, one of the weird parts of this disaster is it actually increased lead contamination throughout Joplin. So, not only did they have a catastrophic tornado that destroyed a third of their city, 
an entire third of the city was destroyed. But it also increased lead contamination in the city itself because Joplin had been a major place of lead mining. There were open pits and tailings from the mines all throughout the area, and the tornado picked up and launched many of the leftover tiny bits of lead, placing it all over the city because stuff would get sucked up into the tornado and you would find stuff miles and miles away. So there were little bits of lead found in people's yards, and it actually required the EPA to come out and come up with a remediation plan to also help with the lead contamination throughout the city on top of fixing the tornado damage and all of that. And then another weird little anecdote from this storm, the traveling Piccadilly Circus was supposed to perform in Joplin in the week after the tornado, but the place they were supposed to perform was turned into a temporary hospital because the actual hospitals in Joplin were shut down as they were heavily damaged by the tornado. So the circus decided, instead of taking the day off and just doing whatever while they hung out around now-destroyed Joplin waiting to go to the next place, they used their two elephants to help pull cars away from where they had landed in homes and businesses, which kind of seems mean to the elephants, but is still a really odd anecdote from this particular one. There are photos of elephants pulling cars out of basements in Joplin in the aftermath of the tornado. It's really, really interesting. In the end, Joplin did change their housing standards. They now require most homes to be built with hurricane tie-downs that withstand winds of up to 200 miles per hour. It adds a couple hundred dollars onto the construction costs, but it's worth it to, you know, not have complete neighborhoods destroyed by tornadoes. But the issue with not having basements in Joplin is still an issue because they did not require to basements to be built in new homes after the disaster. There's actually less homes in Joplin now with basements than there were before the tornado. So it was like 35% before the tornado. It's now down to like 28% of houses in Joplin have basements. There's also significantly less storm shelters in Joplin before and after the tornado, which I also find to be extremely interesting because most of the people who were in Joplin are still living in Joplin after the tornado. This tornado ended up being the deadliest tornado in American history since accurate records started to be kept in the 1950s. In the end, it would only take 46 minutes for 161 people to lose their lives and thousands more to have their entire lives changed forever. As it stands right now, this episode is an hour and 18 minutes long. It took less time for the tornado of Joplin to destroy Joplin than it did for me to tell the story of the tornado destroying Joplin. And just know that there are hundreds, if not thousands, more stories of sheer bravery in the face of death from those 46 minutes. People who did things that they never thought they could do, survived something they never thought they could survive, took care of each other, took care of strangers, took care of family members, kept each other safe, kept each other alive, and checked up on each other after that 46 minutes of absolute terror was over. If you drive through Joplin now, it's nearly impossible to tell the scar that tornado left on the surface of the city. But if you know just where to look, you can kind of sort of tell that the trees in a certain area are a little bit younger. The buildings appear to be a little bit younger than the rest of the city. And 
they have done an admirable job of rebuilding their city, showing that they are strong, that they can take this and they will move forward and build back and be the city that they can be proud of once again. And they've done a very good job. And that's the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, you can follow me on all social medias. It's disastrous history everywhere you go. Um, I appreciate you all so much. I'm so glad to be back. I'm hoping to get episodes out a little bit quicker now. Um, still doing, as you can tell, if you've been around since the beginning, my episodes have gotten significantly longer. Uh, I do, I've gotten better at research and better at writing and a bit better at finding things that are more relevant and kind of talking more. So my episodes are a little bit longer, so it takes me a little bit longer to write them. I'm sorry about that, but it is what it is. I think the episodes are getting better than they were. Um, I've probably lost almost everybody at this point. So as always, remember to stay safe and check your smoke detector batteries.